Reading for today out of John, the 12th chapter, 12th verse through the 19th. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, the text before us today is so sacred and the waters here are so deep, Father, that I honestly feel um, that it's above me to bring any kind of insight to it. And yet I rejoice because the Holy Spirit of God is among us. And as we open up your word, you work among your people. And I'm so grateful, Father, that the, the effectiveness, the depth, the power, the reach of our preaching ministry here at Glory of Christ Fellowship is not about us, but it's about you It's about the God who has revealed himself and who continues to reveal himself through the word and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would come now, Lord. We pray that you would give us sight and insight. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to discern. And we pray, Father, that you would cause us to bow before Jesus, our great King of Kings and our sacrificial Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Six days before the Passover, Jesus was uh, anointed in the town of Bethany with some very expensive ointment by a woman named Mary who was the sister of Lazarus. For her part, I think her motive was that she was overwhelmingly grateful to Jesus for what he had done with her brother. I think if you or I had a brother who died and watched Jesus raise him from the dead, that we would be enormously grateful. And so for her, that gift of of anointing Jesus, which was about a $20,000 gift, was for her just a token of the appreciation for the Lord that she felt in her heart. But as for Jesus, he saw something more in her act. In fact, I think he saw it as a prophetic act that was intended by his father to prepare him for burial. Jesus knew that the coming Passover was going to be his last Passover on earth, And Jesus knew that he had come not only to attend that Passover, but actually to be the fulfillment of that Passover by becoming the Passover lamb himself. And he also knew that that aroma, very expensive as it was, poured out upon his body, would remain upon his body as a physical symbol of the spiritual reality that God the Father had sent him into the world that God the Father had directed him to go to the cross and give up his life, and that God the Father would be faithful to him all the way to the end, and in fact would be faithful to him forever. As for the chief priests and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people in that day, 
when they heard that more and more people were coming to believe in Jesus because of what he had done in the life of Lazarus, rather than humbling their hearts, they actually hardened their hearts. Rather than seeking to know more about this one who could raise people from the dead, they resolved to take his life, and they also resolved to take Lazarus's life, which is just stunning to me. They felt that if they only killed Jesus, they would not kill his movement because there would be left in the world a guy he had raised from the dead. And people who have been raised from the dead tend to have influence when they share their testimony, right? And so they resolve, we have to kill them both. The shepherds of Israel decided to put to death one whom Jesus had brought to life by the power of his words. The wolves of Israel were on the prowl, beloved. Their teeth were sharpened. Their eyes were fixed upon their prey. But as for the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, his will was fully surrendered to his Father's will, and his eyes were now upon the cross, and he had determined to do his Father's will all the way to the end. He had determined to become the Passover lamb. And so John tells us in verse 12 that Jesus headed from the town of Bethany now toward Jerusalem. It was only like a three-mile journey, but he's moving now from Bethany toward Jerusalem. And John says that this happened on the next day. And when you go through the details of this, this almost certainly means that this was on Sunday morning. So I told you last week that for the Jews, when the sun set, the next day began. So technically for them, Saturday night was the beginning of Sunday. And this meal at which Jesus was anointed happened on Saturday night. But sometimes the phrase, the next day, gets used to mean just when the sun rises. And surely that's what it means here. On Sunday morning, when the sun rose, Jesus began to make his way into the city of Jerusalem. Somehow, a large crowd of pilgrims that traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover heard of Jesus coming, and they spontaneously took several actions. Now, we should not get the idea that every person who came to Jerusalem for the Passover heard of Jesus coming, or that they even cared about Jesus coming, or that they were interested in taking any actions. We know from historical studies that the population of Jerusalem in that day was about 100,000 people, so about five times the size of Elk River. But at Passover time, the population would swell to over one million people. And in fact, Josephus tells of a a, a particular Passover where some 2.7 million people came into that city. So Jerusalem would have been absolutely packed with people, and particularly with pilgrims who were there for the Passover. We should not get the picture that that entire group of over a million people heard of Jesus coming and decided to take some actions. Rather, probably what happened was that some people who had already known about Jesus' ministry heard that he was in the area. They wanted to be with him, and so they decided to take some specific actions. And when they took those actions, probably the word spread and many others went with them. So we don't know how large this crowd was, but we know that it was massive. It was huge. Tens of thousands of people likely went out to Christ, and they took three specific actions. First of all, John tells us in verse 13 that they took up branches of palm trees, Now in that day, and even to this day, but in that day it was even more so, the region of Jerusalem, and particularly Jericho, was replete with date palms. So I grew up in the Palm Springs area. 
We moved from Los Angeles out there when I was 11 or 12 years old, and out in Palm Springs area, there are all kinds of date palms in there. You can get dates in just about any form that you would like out in that area. Date shakes, date this, date that, whatever. Jerusalem's very much the same. There are uh, date palms all over the place, and so they were plentiful. And over the years, the, the, the branches from those palms came to symbolize righteousness. It's probably because the psalmist wrote in Psalm 92, 12, this. He wrote, the righteous flourish like a palm tree and they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Now, if you've ever seen a palm tree, you might wonder why the psalmist compared us to a palm tree because there's not really much to the things. But if you've seen a date palm, you'd have a different point of view because the date palm is actually a kind of fruit tree. It's not just beautiful to look at, but it's actually good for the body and plentiful with food. And so for the psalmist, he looked at this and said, the righteous are like that. The righteous are like a tree, a palm tree that's planted in a good place and is bearing fruit in its season for the glory of God and for the good of other people. This symbol of a palm branch for righteousness had become so significant by the time of Jesus that it actually became the symbol of Israel. It was like a national symbol for the country. The Romans even recognized this as their symbol. And if you look at the coinage that the Romans made for the territory of Israel in those days, you'll see that there's a palm branch on on the back of the coin. And that's because it had become a national symbol of the people of Israel. So when the crowd took up palm branches and welcomed Jesus into the city, they were lauding him as a sovereign power. They were lauding him as a dignitary, and they were probably, almost certainly, lauding him as their long-awaited messianic king. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Second of all, having gathered their prom branches, John tells us that they went out to meet him. That's significant. Now, John does not tell us where they went out to meet him, but at this place, Luke fills in some details that are very helpful for us. It turns out that when Jesus left Bethany, the hometown of Lazarus, he went up the Mount of Olives, the eastern side of it, and he came down the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. Luke says that as he was coming down the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, quote, whole multitudes of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So just please get the picture in your mind. Jesus is traveling three miles from the east toward the west. He goes up the Mount of Olives, and as he begins to come down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem, his disciples, which would have been a a sizable crowd of people, were praising him, loudly and publicly praising him for his entrance into that city. Most likely then what happened was that the people in Jerusalem who were curious about Jesus saw this happening, heard the singing, and decided to go out to him. They decided rather than waiting for him, they would go out and meet him. Now, to us, that might just be an expression of their emotional state. In other words, when we hear that the crowd went out to meet Jesus, we might just think that the reason is because they were so excited they didn't want to sit where they were, but they wanted to get to to where Jesus was. And I I think there is some truth to that. I think they had a, a huge amount of anticipation about just seeing Jesus face to face. Some of them had seen him before, many of them had heard of him, but they had never seen him, so surely they just longed to see his face. But in that day, for a people to leave their city gates and go out to meet a person and escort them in, that's what you would do for a dignitary. That's what you would do for a a sovereign. That's what you would do to keep honor on somebody who is visiting your city. So for them to go out to Jesus was for them to say something about Jesus. 
with the palm branches and with their going out. They're saying he's a sovereign. He's a, a, a serious, high-level dignitary. And again, most likely in their minds, they had in mind that he was their long-awaited messianic king. The third thing John tells us, he doesn't really say when this happened, but most likely it happened when they reached Jesus and when their eyes met his. They began to cry out to him in the words of Psalm 18, 25, and 26. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, some of you may know that the word Hosanna is a Hebrew word that just means save us now, or deliver us now, it could also mean. Here, it's used to summarize Psalm 118, verse 25, and the, the, the flow of Psalm 118 is so important to what's happening in this story that I want to ask you to keep a finger in John, but turn back with me to Psalm 118. We're going to spend a few minutes here because I want to work us through the logic of what's happening so that we can see the, the depth of what John is trying to help us see. By, well, verse 118, verse 25, when you get there, it says this. It says, save us, we pray. So in Hebrew, that's Hosanna, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. By the time of Jesus, the word Hosanna had become a sort of a shortcut for the people of Israel to quote uh, 118.25. So rather than saying, save us, O Lord, O Lord, uh, we pray, give us success, they would just say Hosanna, and that would draw to mind the whole of verse 25. And this leads us into some uh, pretty deep things as to why they did that. And so let me just sort of back up and give you a context of how Psalm 118 functioned in the life of the Jewish people in those days. You may remember when we were in the chapters that dealt with the Feast of Booths, I told you that Psalms 113 through 118 formed a group of psalms that the Jewish people called the Hallel. Hallel means praise, but it can also mean a prayer offered up to God. And Hallel had come to to be the name of this group of psalms that would be sung to God on a regular basis by the temple choir of Israel. So at every major Jewish feast, in every morning of those feasts, what would happen is that the choir would rise early in the morning, they would go out on the steps facing outward toward the city, and they would sing the words of Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and then they would sing Psalm 118. When they reached Psalm 118.25, and they spoke that word Hosanna, every man and every boy in Israel would take a thing that they called a lulav. It's their word for a bouquet. It was made up of, of, of myrtle and myrrh and uh, no, it was willow and myrtle and palm branches, and they would wave this before the Lord. So when Hosanna was sung, just imagine in your mind a throng of men and boys waving this thing before the Lord. In that day, Psalm 118 was understood by the rabbis, rightly so, by the way, as a messianic psalm. They understood it as a prophecy of the day when the Messiah would come into the life of Israel and again lead the people of Israel. And so for them to wave the branches before the Lord at Psalm 118.25 was for them to anticipate the day when they would welcome the Messiah into the city of Jerusalem. This was a regular practice of the people of Israel for hundreds of years before Jesus Christ approached the city on this particular day. So it's no wonder 
that when the crowd went out to meet Jesus, they took with them palm branches. It's possible that they just took the whole bouquet along with them, that there were palm branches and more. And it's no wonder that when they got to him, they quoted from Psalm 125 and said, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. And then they quoted verse 26 and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They then added this little description, even the king of Israel, and they were not so much in saying even the king of Israel, they were not so much adding to the word of God as they were explaining how they understood this term, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, the king of Israel. So let me now back up to the beginning of the psalm and just sort of help us see the flow of it so that you can understand why they, they understood verse 26 as referring to a king. Psalm 118 begins with a, a, an amazing affirmation of the steadfast love of God, which in the Bible, the steadfast love of God refers to the fact that God is faithful to his promises. When God makes a promise, you can be assured that he's gonna keep it all the way to the end of time. This is what is meant by the steadfast love or the covenant faithfulness of God. And then in verses uh, five through 16, the psalmist goes on to talk about some troubles in his life and his hope that God will deliver him out of those troubles. These opening verses then culminate in the high statement of verses 17 and 18, which I wanna read with you and I wanna suggest to you are about Jesus, they're about the Messiah, the psalmist writes, but I think speaking on behalf of the Messiah, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I submit to you that that's about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Having triumphed over death, the Messiah then intercedes with the Lord and says this in verses 19 through 24, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. Remember John 10. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation, by which I think he means my rescue from death. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That verse is quoted several times by New Testament writers and said that it's about Jesus. So we know that the flow of this thought is about Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now that last verse is often put on bumper stickers and plaques and all kinds of stuff to just say in a general way on any old day, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I suppose there's not really a sin in, in applying the verse that way, but that is not what this verse is about. This verse is about the day of the coming of the Messiah. And it's saying that this day, the great day, is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in this day, in this great day. For on this great day, God has fulfilled all of his promises. On this great day, the Lord has become our lamb. The Lord has become the one who died and who rose again, who is the righteousness of God and the gate into his presence. This leads then to the final plea of the psalm, which is now not from the Messiah, but from the people to God. The people 
in Jesus' day, quoted two verses to him uh, of this last section, but really we have to take it as a whole. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord, from the, the temple of God. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. You remember chapter seven, Jesus said that he is the light of God. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness endures forever. Beloved, please note with me that when the crowd heaped this praise upon Jesus, he did not rebuke them for it, he did not correct them. Earlier, when they tried to force him to become their king, you might remember that he escaped from them and got away, that was in chapter two, but here now in chapter 12, they are publicly praising him as a dignitary, as a king, as the Messiah of Israel, and he is receiving their public praise. It's an amazing, astounding fact. We often criticize the Jews of, those day, of that day. We often criticize even the disciples for having a misunderstanding about the Messiah. We often say that they thought of him as a political and military leader, but Jesus came to be something else, but we're the ones who are a little bit off on that. They, they weren't completely right about what they thought of Jesus, but they weren't completely wrong either. He did come to be a king, and when they publicly lauded him as the king of Israel, he did not reject their praise. The truth of the matter was, in just about six and a half weeks, he was going to be enthroned on the very throne of heaven. He was about to become the king not only of Israel, but the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. So in part, the people saw in Jesus what they should have seen in Jesus, and we should be maybe a little wiser with our criticisms of the people. They were not completely wrong. The, the truly blind ones here were the shepherds of Israel, but the people saw something real about Jesus. Now, what they didn't see was this, that on his march to becoming enthroned as the king of all kings, he first had to become the festal lamb of sacrifice. You see, at the end of Psalm 118, when it says, bind up that sacrifice, bring it up to the altar, the people would have been thinking about a, a, a sacrifice of praise to God, but what they didn't understand was that the psalmist had in mind the great once for all sacrifice to God of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. Before Jesus was to become the king of kings, beloved, he had to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is both king of all and the Passover lamb. Oh, what glory there is in Christ. Let's go back to, to John. John tells us now in verse 14, he fixes our attention on Jesus. He told us first about what the people did, and now he's going to tell us about a couple things that Jesus did as he traveled from Bethany toward Jerusalem. There are two things Jesus did. They're related but distinct. First, John says in verse 14 that Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. Now, the other three Gospels give us a little bit more detail here that I think is helpful, so let me just say that when Jesus left Bethany and started heading up the Mount of Olives, there was a little town halfway up the eastern side of the Mount of Olives called Bethpage. Jesus stopped in Bethpage, and there he told his disciples to go to another village and find a donkey and a colt that no one had ever sat upon, and they were to 
take that donkey and its colt and bring him back to Jesus. And the disciples obeyed him. They did just that. When they arrived back in Bethpage, the disciples put their cloaks over the colt that had never been ridden upon, and they set Jesus on that colt. So that's the first action he took, is he secured the colt of a donkey. Second thing that he did was he rode that colt up the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. He crested over the top, and he descended down the western side and toward the city of Jerusalem. Now, have you ever wondered why he did this? You ever wondered why he chose a donkey, why he rode anything into the city at all, and, and then specifically why he chose a donkey? Well, on the one hand, when especially a leader rode a donkey into a city in that day, it was an expression of humility and of peace. And to help you understand what I mean, just imagine if Jesus had fetched a war horse and ridden a war horse into the city of Jerusalem. What would that have communicated to the people, do you think? The people were in a frenzy. They wanted freedom from the Roman government. They're looking for a leader. And I will grant that they were wrong about this. They thought that the Messiah was going to become was going to come and be an immediate political and military leader and destroy the Roman nation so that the earthly nation of Israel could have its place again. They were wrong about that. If Jesus would have come into the town on a war horse, he would have been saying, you're right, and I'm here to set things right. I'm here to gather an army. I'm here to come against the Romans. I'm here to take over, and I'm going to be the king. But that's not what he did. Instead of riding in on a war horse, he chose a beast of burden. He chose a, a donkey. And it wasn't just a thing that he understood. It was understood in that day when a dignitary rode a donkey into a city. It was a sign that I've come in peace. I have not come to make war. Second issue um, is that if Jesus had just walked into the city rather than ridden his donkey into the city, you know what he would have been communicating? He easily could have walked, beloved. We've seen him traveling all over the place. He walked mile after mile, day after day. It was only a three-mile walk into Jerusalem. But if he would have simply walked into the city, here's what he would have been communicating. He would have been saying to the people, I do not receive your assertion that I am the fulfillment of Psalm 118. He would have been saying that I do not accept the claim that I am the king of Israel. But I'm telling you, in that day, for those people to see him riding that donkey and receiving their praise, it was a way of Jesus saying to them, I accept what you're saying about me. I am the King of Israel. I am the fulfillment of Psalm 118. I am the long-awaited one. This is probably the first time and the greatest time that Jesus made a public proclamation of his identity, and and again, even though the people didn't fully understand, Jesus did not reject everything that they said. As he approached the city, came near to the city gates, the four gospel authors together tell us that some of the people waved their branches before him, and some of them laid their branches down on the ground along with their coats before him. Those who waved their branches before Jesus were signaling their praise of him. They're welcoming him in a praiseful way as their Messiah. Those who laid their branches down on the ground and their coats down on the ground, they're simply giving Jesus the red carpet treatment. So if you've ever been in a church where on Palm Sunday they bring branches and lay them down, the whole point behind that symbol is to lay out the red carpet for a coming king. It's to lay out the red carpet for a high-level dignitary. In fact, as the church was born and 
other opponents of the church rose up in later days, only 10, 20 years later, the opponents of Christianity and of Christ actually used this story against Christians by saying that they were a people who praised a donkey of a leader. They told the They tried to shame the Christians by saying, you worship a weak man who has no power to deliver you and has no will to deliver you. And what they meant by that was he was gonna be no political power broker, that's for sure. But as for Jesus' part, he was not trying to communicate to the people that he was a weak person. Rather, he was trying to communicate that he came to fulfill an ancient prophecy, the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. I'd like to ask you to turn there with me too. If you don't know the Bible real well, it's a little bit hard to find, but Zechariah is the, last, is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you find the Old Testament, Malachi is the last book, Zechariah is right before that. And I wanna look with you at Zechariah chapter nine. And I wanna suggest to you that when Jesus got on that donkey and rode it into the city, he knew in his mind he was conscious of the fact that he was fulfilling this prophecy. Zechariah chapter nine, verses one through eight, is a prophecy from God against the enemies of Israel. And then in verse nine, the Lord turns his attention toward Israel itself, and he says this. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you compare this with John 12, 15, you're gonna see that John opens up the quote with the words, fear not, fear not, O daughter of Zion, rather than rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But this is probably an instance where the New Testament writer is mixing a couple of quotes that have to do with the similar theme. He's probably drawing from Isaiah 40 or possibly Zephaniah chapter three. But it's not as though he's misquoting the Bible. He's drawing to mind quotes of a similar theme. The more important thing for us to understand is that in quoting uh, verse nine, he was trying to highlight the prophecy given from of old, about four or 500 years before Christ ever walked this earth, that their king was supposed to come into the city as a gentle, humble leader. This was supposed to happen. This was of God's doing. However, Neither they nor we should take this to mean that Jesus was or is a weak leader because that's not the case. Please look at the following verses. The Lord continues in verses 10 to 13. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which means the northern part of Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. In other words, he's saying that he's gonna bring war to an end. But in order to bring war to an end, you gotta be a pretty powerful person, don't you? Imagine a nation that's at war and you say you're gonna bring that war to an end. Well, you better come with some guns. You better come with some power. So don't think that our humble king is a weak king. He's not. And then when he brought war to an end, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He will not only rule over Israel, but he will rule over the entire planet. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, 
and wield you like a warrior's sword. Whatever the thoughts of his disciples, whatever the thoughts of that crowd in Jerusalem, whatever the thoughts of his later opponents, beloved, Jesus was intentionally fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah because he knew that he had come to be the king of all kings and the deliverer of God's people. He was aware that he personally was the one who would speak peace to the nations, and not just in Israel, but from sea to sea, from the river, probably meaning the river Euphrates, all the way to the ends of the earth. And he was clear that he had come on the basis of the blood of his covenant, his own infinitely precious and valuable blood, to set prisoners free from every tribe, tongue, and nation and bring them into the stronghold of God. Or if we could use the language of John 10, He knew that his job was to come into the world as the good shepherd of Israel and go out and find the sheep who were straying and who were lost and bring them back into the fold, bring them into the pen of God, bring them into the pasture of God. He knew that he was the fulfillment of these things, but fundamentally, beloved, he did not come to make war. Fundamentally, he came to make peace with the nations. He came to provide salvation. For sure, you'll see at the end of this prophecy, he's gonna pit the Jews against the nations, the Zion against Greece for a season. But the point of the conflict is to make peace. And the point of peace is to provide salvation for the nations. Beloved, the wisdom of God is so foolish to fleshly people. They see Jesus walk into the, or, or ride into the city on a donkey and they shame his followers for that fact. But with Jesus taking this prophetic act, he was saying, I am the man spoken of in Zechariah chapter nine. I am the fulfillment of a 400 year old prophecy faithfully given by the Lord our God. And in his wisdom, he thought it was best to communicate to the Israelites and to the world that he came as the God of great power in humility and in peace. Just stunning to me, beloved, absolutely stunning. If you look real quick, having you flip all over the place today, but if you look at Ephesians now, turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. I just wanna read a few verses because they're so apropos to what's happening here to the depth of what Jesus is signaling that he's about to do in the world. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul had just talked about the dire desperation of people who are without Christ. And then in verse 13, he said this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, he means Gentiles, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Zechariah 9. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. That means Jews and Gentiles. He has made us both into one family of God and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now there's a mouthful for you. But what it's saying is that Jesus came to make peace and that everyone among the Jews and among the Gentiles who would attach themselves to Christ, become unified with Christ, would forever have peace with God. And Paul continues, and he, Jesus, came and he preached peace to you who were far off, to the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. 
For though for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you Gentiles who believe in Jesus, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the what? The cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the very Spirit of God. Oh, beloved, so much is happening in this text. So much is in the mind of Jesus during this time of entry into Jerusalem. So many things are being fulfilled. So many other things are being prophesied, and it's just stunning to see. He rides into that city knowing that he will soon be enthroned as the king of all kings. And he rides into that city knowing that first, first, he has to become the Passover lamb. First, he has to lay down his life and then be brought back to death. He received Mary's anointing in Bethany. John, in his gospel, emphasizes the, the piece of it that had to do with his burial. Mark and Matthew actually emphasize the part of that anointing that has to do with the fact that Jesus is a king. You put both gospels together and you see that the prophetic anointing of Jesus by Mary was a sign that he had come to be the king and the lamb. He had come to be the great, powerful, immovable ruler of all peoples, and he had come to be the one so humble that he would obey his father all the way to death on a cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, that's what happened on that day. And having told us what happened, John goes on in the next few verses to tell us about four different groups of people. And this won't take very long, but let's look at these four different groups of people. First of all, in verse 16, you'll see that John talks to us about the disciples. When his disciples, those who really did believe in him, those who had been following him, those who had been with him through all these chapters that we've been reading, these are the people who had been faithful to him. When they first saw the triumphal entry, when they watched all these events take place, John says they did not understand Now, that doesn't mean that they had no apprehension of what they were seeing. They probably, right along with the crowd, thought Jesus was about to become the king of Israel. They probably thought he was going to go into that city, take over, take take possession of the throne, and that their decision to follow this guy was going to pay off big time. If Jesus was soon to become the literal king of the nation of Israel, these 12 disciples and the others that were near them We're going to have places of power in his kingdom. So they probably were very excited. They understood what happened to some extent, but they didn't understand the deeper meanings. They didn't really get what was going on. When John says that later they remembered these things, John says that after Jesus was glorified, which means after he was raised up on the cross, buried in the ground, rose up from the dead, he was ascended to his Father, enthroned in heaven, after all that happened, The disciples looked back and they remembered these things. And what John means is that they put the pieces together. Specifically what he means is that they figured out that Jesus did what he did in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and in fulfillment of Psalm 118. And the reason they remembered in this way is because of of a promise Jesus made to them in John 14, 25 through 26. 
Jesus said to them that, listen, when I go to be with the Father, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He's talking now just to his nearest disciples. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes about you, he's going to bring you into remembrance of everything that I have said and everything I have done. And, and the implication is clear that the Spirit is going to give them insight about these things. So when John says the disciples remember, don't just think that they're like, oh yeah, remember when that happened? That was something. Wasn't that interesting? What was going on is that the Spirit was giving them deep insight into the powerful things that God was fulfilling and prophesying on this day and in this moment. They saw with the eyes of the Spirit, not with the eyes of the flesh, what God was up to. And they were in awe. Beloved, it's so crucial for us to understand that what they remembered was the connection between prophecy and fulfillment. What they saw was the connection between a God who makes promises and a God who keeps his promises all the way to the end. That's what they saw. And when they saw that, they were in awe. Because remember Psalm 118, it begins and it ends with what? Begins and it ends with an emphasis on the steadfast love of God the God who will keep his promises all the way to the end, and now they know he's gonna keep his promises in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ forever and ever. And praise be to God that these very disciples wrote this stuff down, because if they didn't, we wouldn't be here having this discussion today. They felt compelled not only to see, but to communicate. Praise God that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John wrote what they wrote so that we could enter into the glory of what they saw but I want to emphasize again, the glory of what they saw was the connection between ancient prophecy and fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second group of people John mentions in verse 17, and that is the crowd that saw Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, okay? So these are not the people that were in Jerusalem and then came out to Jesus. These are the people who were with him in Bethany. Watch what he did there, and they walked with him from Bethany to Jerusalem. It's that crowd of people. As for that crowd, John wants us to know something. They couldn't stop talking about what they had seen and heard. They could not stop witnessing. And I love that John puts it in this way, because, beloved, any time a church gets the fire of evangelism that comes upon them. It never comes through the compulsion of leaders trying to force people to share their faith. That will never work. The way true evangelism works is that a soul sees or hears the glory of Jesus Christ in some way, shape, or form, and they can't help but talk about it. It's a natural overflow of the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts. That's what was happening to these people. They were under no compulsion to spread the news, but they could not stop spreading the news. And this leads us to the third group of people in verse 18. In verse 18, John is now talking about the crowd that was in Jerusalem and came out to Jesus, okay? So verse 17, it's the crowd that was in Bethany and went east with Jesus or west with Jesus. Now in verse 18, we have the crowd that was in Jerusalem and traveled out to the east up onto the Mount of Olives to meet with Jesus. And I just want to ask you the question about them. Have you ever wondered what caused them to go out and welcome him into the city as king at that particular time? Have you ever wondered why the triumphal entry didn't happen earlier is another way that I could ask the question. Jesus had come to Jerusalem many times. We've seen a handful of those times in the Gospel of John. Why didn't they respond to him like this then? Why did this happen right now, a handful of days before the final Passover, the ultimate Passover? Why did that happen? John gives us a clue. He says, these people heard the story about Lazarus. 
And, and beloved, I submit to you that when you hear a religious leader has r- raised somebody from the dead and the fact has been confirmed, you're probably going to be motivated to follow that leader. And if you're a Jew in that day, you're going to conclude, who else could this be but the Messiah? You may remember from earlier parts of John that when Jesus did great things, the people were asking, like, how could he not be the Messiah? But when they heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead, they're like, that's it. He has to be the Messiah. He has to be the king. The Lord God Almighty used this little piece of news to cause his people to rise up and welcome his son into Jerusalem as the king of Israel. And Jesus gladly received their praise because he knew that though their vision was not complete, they were also were not completely wrong. He was, in fact, about to become enthroned on the praises of his people. He was, in fact, about to become the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords forever and ever. The fourth group John mentions in verse 19 is the Pharisees. Now, he mentions the Pharisees in particular here rather than the priests or the Sanhedrin, which were a part of the story in the previous chapter and the previous part of Uh, chapter 11 as well, because the Pharisees probably were the most central to the opposition group against Jesus for his whole ministry. So what I mean is that the Pharisees were not the only ones against Jesus, but they were the leaders of the group who was against Jesus. They were the instigators. They were the most passionate ones. They wanted to get him more than anybody else wanted to get him. And I've tried to be careful as we work through the Gospel of John to help you see that not all the Pharisees were just the same. There was a division among the Pharisees. Some of them actually liked Jesus. Some of them were curious about him. Others flat out believed in him. They, they believed that he was the Messiah. But for fear of the more powerful group, they didn't say anything about it. The more powerful group had power and they were against Jesus. So probably John highlights the Pharisees here because they were the leading group also the Pharisees had control of the synagogues in the nation of Israel. And therefore, they were closer to the people than were the Sadducees or the chief priests. They had connections all over the country. And many people from that crowd who had gone out to Jesus were probably known by the Pharisees. But whatever reason that John had for highlighting the Pharisees, the more important thing is that he tells us what they were thinking when they saw all this. When they saw all this, they were just totally exasperated. They're like, well, what what the heck are we gonna do? Like, everything we're doing is not working. We're trying to slow this guy down, we're trying to stop him, nothing is working, he's gaining more and more and more momentum. Notice what they said. They said, the whole world is going after this guy. Now that's an overstatement, but it'll show you what was in their hearts. They just felt like the entire world was going after him and there was nothing they could do about it. And listen, they were in a predicament because if they opposed him publicly, guess who would turn against them? The crowd. You don't want to rise up against the leader and have a million people turn on you. So they're in, from their point of view, are in a tricky spot. But from our point of view, what we have to see is that they looked at this and strengthened their resolve and sharpened their knife and got ready to kill the Passover lamb, although they didn't see it like that at all. Oddly enough, when they said the whole world is going after him, they were kind of right about that. Very soon, the Gentiles would come and seek Jesus. In fact, in verse 20 and following, some Gentiles are going to come seeking Jesus. The whole world is soon going to go after Jesus, and they had no idea that in sharpening their knife against the Lamb of God, They were actually preparing the way for the salvation of the nations. They had no idea that God was about to use their evil plots to preach the peace 
of Jesus Christ among the nations. I, for one, beloved, am just stunned at the hardness of their heart, but more so at the graciousness of God that can use hard-hearted people to bring about his purposes. And I'm so eager to finish the journey toward the cross with you in the coming months. Now before we close today, I wanna suggest to you that there's a fifth group of people in this story and that that fifth group of people is us. I wanna suggest to you that we are now directly involved in this story, not indirectly. We have been directly involved in this story by the Lord our God who knew that we were gonna ponder this particular story in this particular place at this particular time. He's a God who knows all things at all times and he knew even as the story was happening that that in Elk River in November of 2017 a a little church would be pondering this thing and so now we're involved in it. And I just wonder, I wanna ask you the question this way. If John wrote one more verse about us, what would he say? And I don't so much mean what he would think about how we're responding to the story right in this moment but assume that a few days, a month, or two months have passed and John sort of sees what happens in the church What would he write if he just wrote one more verse to say, then there was this little group of people in Elk River, dot, dot, dot. Well, here's what I hope he would write. I hope that John would write that the people of Glory of Christ Fellowship pondered this story carefully and they embraced Jesus Christ as their only king. You know, we have a strong impulse as human beings to follow a great leader, we really do. It's in nations all over this world, the very rare people who just wanna go out in the middle of nowhere and live life by themselves. Most people have a very strong, innate desire to follow a great leader who is building a very great nation. There's something good about that. There's something right about that. We obscure it in many, many ways. But God has in fact put that inside of our hearts. But the thing is that this impulse can only be satisfied and will only be satisfied when we receive Jesus Christ, not only as our savior, but as our only sovereign, as our only king. Because I'll tell you something about Jesus. He understands something that most leaders do not understand. A leader can only build a kingdom out of people when the hearts and wounds of those people have been healed and their sins have been forgiven. If you are unable to forgive people of their sin, heal them of their wounds, and remove from them their shame, you will never be able to build a great nation. If a leader cannot heal his people, he cannot build out of them a great and everlasting nation. And since that is true, Jesus Christ is the only one, the only one who could be an eternal sovereign forever and ever because he knows that our sins must be forgiven, but he also has the power to forgive sins. He was soon going to become the Passover lamb. He was soon going to become the once for all sacrifice lifted up to the Father so that whoever looks to Jesus and puts their faith in him, their sins are forgiven because the sacrifice has been made that is greater than their sins. I have heard people say before that their sin is too great for God to forgive. And at times I felt that in my own heart as I've thought about certain things that I have done in my life. But I'll tell you, that says more about your view of God than it says about your view of yourself. There's no sin that can be committed on this earth that is greater than the grace of God in Christ. And whoever looks to God in Christ will have their sins forgiven, not just for a time, but forever. And then, of course, there's a process. Time has to pass, but over time, our loving Savior is also our healer. He comes and heals our wounds. He comes and 
probes deep, deep, deep into our souls and keeps making us better. He keeps making us more whole. He keeps healing in us things that we don't even know are there. A few weeks ago, I was out in California and I went to the neighborhood where I grew up. I was excited. I was going to go find a coffee shop, sit there and work and just hang out in my old neighborhood, get on my plane and come back home. I turned a certain corner and I saw the, the neighborhood where I had last been with my father and I started crying like a baby. I started crying like I had never dealt with my father's death, like I had never talked about it, like I had never prayed it through, like I had never been through two years of counseling to help me deal with the wounds that were there. It just was so fresh and so deep. And as I pondered what happened to me there on that day just a few weeks ago, I realized that what's happening is my loving Savior is saying, son, there's a level of this that's still there, still wounded, still broken, and I'm going to open it up so that I can heal. He's a healer, beloved. And as he heals me, I am free. I become free to follow him, to worship him, to love him, to serve him, to lay my life down for him. If a leader cannot forgive the sins of his people and heal the wounds of his people, he cannot build a great nation. And because of this, Jesus Christ is the only possible king of an everlasting kingdom, period and end of story. In a few months, Ethan Larson and I are gonna be visiting Albania and Romania. And when I'm there, I will give honor to their respective presidents, but I will not bow down to them because I am the citizen of a different country. But when I am here in the United States, I hold citizenship here too, but I will not bow down to our government. I will not bow down to any president, no matter how great I think he is, because I serve a greater king, an everlasting king, and my citizenship is actually in heaven with him. And the fact that I hold U.S. citizenship is nothing but a tool for the spread of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. It is a temporary thing that will fade away. So what I'm trying to help us see, beloved, is this. It's good to believe in Jesus. We must receive him as our king. We must look to him as our only sovereign, as our only leader, Sometimes it grieves me to see how animated Christians become about politics and almost no animation about the Bible or about the gospel. Where's your passion when you're talking about Jesus Christ and the things of the kingdom of God? Why do you get so worked up when we talk about politics? Part of the answer is because your eyes are here and not there. And I just want to encourage us to look to Jesus as king, to ponder him as the eternal ruler of an eternal kingdom and bow our lives before him. Now, Jesse Doss had no idea, and Sarah had no idea where I was really going with my sermon this morning, but they picked the perfect closing song, Crown Him with Many Crowns. So let me just pray, and then let's rise together and sing to Jesus Christ, crown him with many crowns. And as we do, let's open our hearts to receive him as our king. Our Father, I'm so deeply grateful to you for this passage, and I pray that you'd continue to give us sight that you continue to give us insight. I pray that you continue to help us see the beauty, the power, the irreversible nature of the glory of Christ in his position as king and in his action as the Lamb of God. And oh, Father, how I pray that you would help us surrender our hearts to you alone, that we would live in this world as citizens of a singular kingdom who serve a singular king. Please come, Father, and help us. I thank you by faith for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen.